what I heard was that it's not easy to put on a uniform and take it off. The skin grows deep, and the sloughing of it is very, very hard. It's not a role change and station of duty change that's rather easy, but a struggle to hold on to humanity. So what I want to um, talk a little bit about specifically is, I, for me, one of the emotions that was most weighty but often not spoken of in terms, specific terms, was guilt. It was the elephant in the room, and it was often born with shame, hence not articulated. Um, and there were three principal forms that I heard, uh, or at least helped me to map it out. And one was an accident, guilt. A second one is one that I, I think of in terms of, of luck guilt, but a kind of survivor guilt, a more generic form of survivor guilt. Um, and a third was a collateral damage guilt, a collateral injury guilt. And uh, I'll try to talk about them a little bit in terms, of, uh, in terms of stories. I should just also say one thing that I think is really critical in thinking about this. I think of the guilt as a kind of humanizing force. It wasn't grandiose in many of the cases that I heard. It wasn't misplaced. It was in strict terms, it wasn't mapping culpability. So irrational in the sense that it wasn't tracking culpability, but it was a sense of personal accountability that these soldiers could not let go of. Things happened in their command that they ne needed to account for. And, but I should say at the same time, and this is very critical to our different audiences, America really is fighting three wars. And if you talk to anyone in the DOD, they will say it's Afghanistan, Iraq, and it's suicide. The suicide rate in the states is, is as, amongst the forces is as high as it is amongst civilians. And the first time since we've been keeping records is that the case. And some months, the suicide fatalities outnumber combat fatalities. And there were last week incidents in Fort Hood amongst newly deployed. But, but you know, the deployments are long. They're longer for us than they are for you. They're typically 12 months, 9 to 12 months multiple and all and reserve and, guard and national guard so it's a very very difficult war and though there's still less stigma than there had been in referring it, it, it and there's some that actually get promoted while they're getting treatment or or referring it's still difficult to come forward early um, and um, adequately <coughs> so let me talk a little bit about mindful of the time here, <coughs> um, about accident guilt, as I call it. So this is a, a case that I remember very clearly. It's a man named, he was at the, he was, um, at the time Major John Pryor. I was captain at the time, Captain Pryor. And uh, he, this was early days of Iraq, and he was in charge of a unit that was a security detail by the Green Zone. And the uh, army, the Bradley fighting vehicle has a gun turret on top, and one of his guys turned on the ignition, and the current jumped right to the turret, the gun, and the gun went off and blew off the face of one of their privates, Private Joseph Mayek. The issue was that the vehicle had used a marine battery rather than an army battery. All the manuals said it was okay, but it, they later learned that it was a different amperage, same voltage. This battery is now outlawed, and his case was fully reviewed for quite a long period. He was exonerated, but um, this is what he says to me. He says, he's re he reconstructs the scene very carefully. It was if, as if an ice cream scoop just scooped out Private Mayek's face. He survived the initial blast, if you can believe it. We were in the medic tent with him. is one of the most traumatic things I've ever seen in my entire life, to literally see someone's face completely scooped out, just the very bottom of his jaw working. He couldn't see, he couldn't hear, he couldn't scream. I mean, he had no eyes, no face. Uh, I can only imagine the terror, the fear. He obviously couldn't breathe because he had no nose or mouth to take air in. It was one of the few times that I really cried, um, just tears streaming down my face, because I'm watching ten people work over this kid. It was an unbelievable thing to see. He then turned to feelings of responsibility. I'm the one 
who placed the vehicles. I'm the one who set the security. As with most accidents, he says, I'm not in jail right now. I'm not egregiously responsible. Any one of a dozen decisions made over the course of a two-month period, and none of them really occurs to you at the time. So I dealt with and still deal with the guilt, he did use the word, of having lost him his life essentially. There's probably not a day that goes by when I don't think of it, at least fleetingly. Now, when I think a little bit about this, I think of Bernard Williams, and I think of agent regret in the philosophical literature, um, and the idea that you're causally implicated but not morally responsible in virtue of something that you intentionally did. But the soldiers I interviewed, Marines, I'm using that generically, <coughs> Marines, seamen, uh, sailors, airmen, and women, doesn't capture the despair or the depth that they really felt uh, for them, there is a sense of self-indictment. And they wanted to make moral repair. And the sense of this unit, and especially the man I was speaking to who, who commanded it, it was his guy. There's a sense of command responsibility and care for your unit that really exceeds um, what agent regret uh, captures. And in his case, the mother of Mayak would write weekly as if she were still talking to her boy. And the unit, including its, its commander, would write back telling them about the day, the week's events. And this mom would send cookies, biscuits every week in a kind of care package. It was very painful, but there was a sense that they had to make moral repair and help to um, normalized the sense, and that was a way to become morally cleared in a, in a way. Another um, phenomenon I think of is luck guilt. It's a kind, it's a more generic form of survivor guilt. We tend to forget that survivor guilt is really a recently dubbed term. It's from the Holocaust, uh, the European, the genocide of European Jewry, and it's um, 1961 referenced in psychoanalytic literature. Uh, when those who survived felt they were the living dead. It's a term they used. And they had this unconscious belief that merely remaining alive was a, a betrayal of the dead. So this terrific sense of betrayal. And a psychoanalyst, I think, it puts it very well. Because um, it, it happens in families, too, when there's an uneven distribution of, of, of goods, you might say. One child feels sort of an unconscious bookkeeping system, says Arnold Medell. Uh, it's not unfamiliar, of course. Um, if you think of Homeric uh, stories, and I'm thinking particularly about Achilles. Achilles himself gives, <coughs> excuse me, fighting a cold. Achilles gives Patroclus his, uh, his armor, and, and Patroclus fights. And Achilles has this horrific sense that he did switch places in some sense. He gave up his ability or his uh, willingness to fight. But not everyone does that. Not everyone seeds of responsibility. And those that don't still feel this horrific sense of a sense of, of guilt, a kind of dumb luck, tragic luck. Um, and I felt this, I, w I did a small interview in, in Annapolis, the home of the Naval Academy, when Marines had just returned from the fall of Baghdad. And they had this tremendous sense that they were in a bucolic sailing community stateside when their buddies were over overseas. And there is a sense that they didn't deserve to be there. So the sense of moral, you know, kind of a rational moral desert was coming in. Um, part of this, I think, is a way to understand this is, is empathic distress. We hear of unit cohesion as what holds the units together and it minimizes in some ways uh, the sense of trauma and also protects vulnerability. That certainly was a lesson that was learned uh, early and hard from Vietnam, keeping units together. But that doesn't necessarily mitigate the sense of guilt. Uh, now, in this case, some of the unit had been dispersed, but still, a sense of surviving when others don't. Many I interviewed at Walter Reed felt awful that they didn't have facial disfigurement. Women felt awful that they were 
as, as severely harmed as some of the men. And it was a sense that uh, even if they had TBI, traumatic brain injury, it was invisible, that visible injuries were much more uh, significant in some sense. So I think sometimes <coughs> when you think about guilt, one place to go, and the place I sometimes go is Freud, that it's rooted in anxiety about doing wrong and a kind of fear of punishment. For these soldiers, it was rooted in what Melanie Klein would call a sense of kind of empathic distress, a sense that you are in some way harming the very thing that you love, and so you're being, you persecute yourself for that harming. And here, what a very strong voice was a, a guy named um, Major Michael Mooney, and I'll just read you uh, a little bit. So he had a kind of triple whammy, you might say, a horrible set of triple traumas. Um, although was not fully traumatized by it, um, as I understand, you know, I, uh, at least to hear. He was part of a lead battalion on March 2003 that um, uh, was asked to help oops, the maintenance um, team of 507 maintenance team. This is Jessica Lynch's um, group, if you remember that story. And they had suffered horrific losses, 80 killed, 80, uh, 80 casualties. And they pulled many of the dead out. And then two months later, the unit goes back for st peace and stability operations. And as he describes this to me, it's very physical. His feelings are extremely somatic. So he says, I remember driving into the city from the north this time, almost flinching bracing as we're going down Ambush Alley, because I remember the last time I was in it. We are still seeing the charred marks on the road where we lost amphibious tractors. Catastrophic kills where every Marine in that Amtrak was killed in action. And then there's a battalion-wide memorial, and he gets, uh, he gets orders to return to the Naval Academy to take up this position where I later was to see him to head up a company. And he says, and you can feel the rupture with the unit is very palpable. And he says, I didn't have the same experience or opportunity as the other Marines leaving the combat zone. I had orders to report to the Naval Academy. I had to get there quickly or I wasn't going to execute them. And then he talks about this surreal transition we take for granted. In American airports, you see units coming through, but you don't quite realize what they're going through. And he describes it. I caught a plane, got shuttled to Kuwait City, was thrown on a BA flight. Several, seven hours after being in Iraq, I'm in Frankfurt sitting in a first-class lounge. It was surreal. Trying to actually look at the porcelain toilets because the last time I had taken a shower was about four months earlier. And then 10 hours after, I was meeting my family and my wife-to-be at National, excuse me, Reagan National, he says to me, um, which also was very surreal. Many of these people have engaged or have um, promises to marry, don't know their new families very well and then all of a sudden have this new family that's greeting them at the, at the airport. It was an interesting dynamic, he says, being transitioned so quickly. Boom, boom, boom. And then I say, how did it go for you? And he says, it was just fine, ma'am, just fine. And then seconds later, he sort of reveals the true weight. And he says, just for me personally, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't think about these times because of the accomplishments we achieved and the incredible loss of potential for the, for the Marines. And this term loss of potential was code. I heard it so often, it was too hard to say dead, but loss of potential was the way to talk euphemistically about the boys. And then he says, I keep telling my new wife now, I say, you've got to prepare yourself. Because after sitting here in Annapolis, beautiful Annapolis, for three years, after wonderful air conditioning here, while my brothers and sisters have been out on their second, third tours, you need to come to grips with the fact that I'm going to be away for a while. And he is in Afghanistan right now. He was as I, um, in March. And as I was listening to this, what came to mind, and maybe to your minds, was Siegfried Sassoon. Here's Siegfried Sassoon, World War I. Um, and you'll know this much better than I do, but uh, as retold um, in the Shurston Memoirs, but also, of course, in the Pat Barker trilogy, 
Um, he's at Craig Lockhart outside Edinburgh, and Graves says, you know, you better stay there rather than really show your colors that you've talked to Bertrand Russell, that you may be a pacifist. But all he wants to do, and he urges his, uh, his physician, uh, Rivers, is to go back to the front. And he writes these poems. I banished from the men who fight, they smote my heart to pity, built my pride, shoulder to aching shoulder, side by side. And then he hears his, his, his boys calling out in sickly, when are you going out to them again? Are they still not your brothers through our blood? That sense of having to be there no matter, no matter what. I actually think brotherhood is not really the way to speak about it often. It was motherhood. It was caring. It was command responsibility understood in terms of some solidarity and caring ethic, which made the guilt not irrational in the sense it wasn't their moral responsibility, but it was a heightened sense of responsibility often understood in terms of empathic, uh, empathic connection and somehow betraying an, an empathic role. The last kind of um, guilt, and I'll wrap up with this, um, was the hardest uh, and most problematic, and that had to do with collateral killing. Um, the, and especially if, uh, if children were involved. <coughs> Many who spoke to me would say, the children are the access to us. They're also what you're warned against, getting too close with in counterinsurgency operations. But my Marines would take out their their wallet and show a picture of their children to the elder of the family to say, you know, I know it, I know what it's like. And many of the Marines, uh, Army guys would, and women would play with children. It was, it was, it was a way of finding some normalcy. Um, and one guy, this guy Hall, would, in, in in his case, he often operated with a. Um, an army colonel who was formerly in Les Médecins Sans Frontières, um, Doctors Without Borders, and was into, did humanitarian medicine, and specifically children's medicine. And so they had identified a child who had a congenital hole in her heart. And Major Hall not only brought the doctor, but organized a charitable little trust for this child and got money back um, and others goods for the village, only to later discover when they returned to get her into hospital that the family was floating down a river because they had been collaborating essentially with Americans, uh, the insurgents believe. So there is a sense of working with children, vulnerability to children, and often the betrayal that comes with thinking that you've let down the families. And in the case of of checkpoint incidents, some of them, Marine colonels would say it was hardest to deal with troops that had killed children in checkpoint incidents. They all, the, the troops often had to be brought offline. And so in one case, Marine Colonel Bob Durkin, he commanded a battalion just outside uh, Baghdad <coughs> during Operation Iraqi Freedom early days, and he said, <coughs> that if the injuries or deaths were of adult men whom they suspected were suicide bombers or women in large burqas who might be concealing explosives, this is how he put it, his marines would generally fluff it off and justify it to themselves rightly or wrongly. And they would argue, counterfactually, he said, if I couldn't find out, it still could have been this or it could have been that. But he says, when children weren't involved, there was a dramatic psychological difference. In the case of a badly hurt child, his Marines, he said, I'm quoting, would go out of their way to call in medevac aircraft to get the child out to the hospital, sometimes putting themselves and each other at risk. They couldn't shake what they had done or justify the killing to themselves. This was before the current rules of engagement, where he was, uh, his rules, local rules of engagement, required um, less protection for the troops and more aggressive um, use of firepower. But I often thought about this in terms of the, the soldier. These Marines, often his guys were very young. They were boy warriors who regressed a bit in the image of a child, or they were, I often teach at Uniform Health Services to clinicians who've come back and who have greatest difficulty with soldiers who have killed children and then who then go to their own homes and have children the age of the children who have died. And it's 
They're, the identification and projection is very clear in their minds. So, you know, hearts and minds, sometimes it's for the soldiers as well and not just for the citizens. Uh, I want to um, end with, <coughs> you know, uh, um, a sense that the sense of subjective guilt isn't something uh, Kant talks well about. For him, the, the, any kind of negative guilt are sort of morose and, cheer, and cheerless, and he wants to think of the soaring respect you feel for others. But Nietzsche is the philosopher who sort of captures it for me. And he says subjective guilt or bad conscience can become torture without end, undoing any prospects for happiness. And he says this subjective guilt doesn't grow in the soil where you'd most expect it, such as in prisons where there actually are guilty parties who should feel remorse for wrongdoing. Rather, it's often, quote, a question of someone who caused harm, who causes a misfortune for which he's morally responsible. And he's picking up on Spinoza here, who says the bite of conscience, that's a very classical term that Seneca and Cicero write lots about, the bite, that hurt of conscience, has to do, says Spinoza, with an offense where something has gone ex unexpectedly wrong. And he says, it's not really a case of I ought not to have done that, but it's rather a case that it happened. So enduring the recriminations of a harsh superego, you know, is, is, is partly what is, is going on. And, and, and it's, it's self-directed fury. Um, Seneca talks about rage to the other. In this case, many of my soldiers felt self-directed fury. But it was their way of humanizing what they were going through. And I think I'll sort of end on this note. My, I'm, my time's about... You're doing fine. You're doing good? Yeah. Um, someone I started talking to was a Vietnam vet. And he, in, in his case, is more difficult. So he had a kind of um, gun-happy sergeant who said, okay, you guys are on sentry duty. You, you know, you might get your Marines. You might get a little rusty with your rifles, so I think we should practice. And apparently this was not so uncommon in Vietnam days. He took them out to the riverside, and there was a fishing village, a, a group of fishermen, but my particular Marine knew well, he saw that there were children and women in that fishing village, and it just looked like a, that they were fishing. And this sergeant had his unit <coughs> fire at them. And my Marine said to me, I fired low. I deliberately missed. But for 40 years, I've lived with the thought that I didn't protest the order. I didn't publicly protest the order. The others fired. So it was an omission and a difficult <coughs> one. It's yet a different kind of case than the other three that I dealt with. But he said to me, you know, you write about guilt a bit. And I have to tell you that for me, especially as a Vietnam veteran, somewhat misunderstood a different era, he said, feeling guilt over these years was a way that I could humanize what, what war did to me. And it was a way that he could transition back into civilian mentality or address civilians, but also himself as a civilian. So I think of the guilt as somewhat redemptive and not necessarily, you know, mis what soldiers go through is misunderstood if it's all a psychological injury without understanding the alarm of psychological injury that doesn't rise to the level of acute chronic trauma is moral injury. And it's moral, in, it, coin is so hard for these soldiers to put their own troops at risk, to be denied the resources they need to develop rapport with villagers, to collaborate with villagers, but then to have to return a week later, you know, and not be able to give the villagers the resources or to move on and find that the insurgents got to your collaborator before you could protect them and to see you know, the elder with whom you're working piled up on top of his children dead. These are betrayals that are remarkably hard to live with and they need to be addressed. And I often think you know, we pay public respect, lip service to our, uh, our um, men and women in uniform, but we don't really know all the stories. And so part of what I want to hear from them is their moral, the moral psyche, if you like. And, um, you know, it's not just the language and mask of uniform and decorum. It's really what goes on underneath. Um, and I'll perhaps um, just end with my soldier, Will Quinn, 
Quilquin, the interrogator, said, you know, I've come back to Georgetown, so he's an older, um, older guy, and he says, you know, what I did to order, in order to build rapport something I can't even begin to relive with my friends. But he said, this is how I think about it. I'm Catholic, and I often go to Mass. But I often go to Mass in Latin, and I don't understand Latin. Entering a war zone is like going to Mass in Latin. You enter a different time and space. And then I come out, and I have to make the transition. So for him, he's talking about dissociation. But he, in all his tours, he stood on the rim, on the edge, looking down with his full humanity. He's really quite remarkable guy, and I think we underestimate how hard it is to hold on to it and to stand on the rim, but to disassociate in a healthy enough way, but then hold on to some bit of it. Thank you very much indeed. Fearful of interfering with the technology, and then find we're worse off than we were when we began. So no problem. Okay, um, we've got plenty of time for questions. We've got uh, near enough forty-five minutes, um, and um, I'm going to ask the first one if Please. I may. <laughs> um, it's a very it's, it's a historian's question. Yeah. Oh. Um, I mean, it's not a historian's question in the sense of being specifically historical. Just that you're using analogies from the ancient world. You used Sassoon to make a point. Are we talking about the same sort of guilt over over time, or are we talking about different sorts of guilt expressed differently over time? I mean, and the Vietnam, you know, story partly brought that into uh, into you know. Your, your, your four guys might all have felt they could have contested the order if it were today, mm-hmm. whereas perhaps in you know, 1970 they felt differently because norms have moved on. So, so, it, so it's, it, it's, Good. You know, it's their change over time. Well, certainly, one of the points uh, I want to make is that you find various kinds of guilt, uh, survivor guilt, early on, unnamed, but it's, it's there. Achilles is complicated. Obviously, very complicated, but it's certainly it's certainly there. Um, I think <coughs> counterinsurgency is very hard on soldiers in the following sorts of ways. Most of my guys, especially I call them my guys because I, t- I I I spend a lot of time with them. I interview them over and over many cases, and I've come to know them as friends. And especially the ones in artillery and infantry. Um, grown, enlisted 18, now 43 or something like that. Um, they were trained to break and destroy. That's how they'll put it. You know, engage and fight and and complete the job. It's, you know, it's it's Klaus Witzian, it's attrition, and they. Some of them will say, you know, we never even we we never read the manual. The manual wasn't out. It came out in 2005. We you know. And, but, but by and large also, they were asked to develop relationships, be armed social workers, as it's sometimes said, and be civilian affair um, workers. When that's not their training, they were often un- inadequately trained and also told to never leave a buddy behind, never leave a fallen comrade behind. And so the sense of caring, taking care, yet having the courage of restraint is very hard on them. And I do think, this was a subject of, you know, uh, I guess some of the discussion on last week Wednesday at the, uh, when you brought the West Point um, person in the redoing of the, of the code, I do think that soldiers, the warriors creed, I will never leave, leave a soul, fallen soldier behind, is tough on them. They, that is their, that is the logo. And they are, and betrayal of trust at all different levels is especially hard in counterinsurgency, I think. Um, in the sense that they really are developing close relationships with locals. Command, in many cases early on, didn't fully support it. They were under-resourced. The institutions that were backing them were un, uh, not um, giving them the right resources. So there may be comparables in, historically, but certainly, you know, as, as, as a war amongst the people, as Rupert Smith would write it, is not what... Um, earlier warfare was like, and, be, and in and amongst uh, uh, civilian populations, 
with relationships to them and wooing, wooing them, earning their interest rather than uh, overtaking them is very different, very different set of skills. And I think very, very hard on the psyche, moral psyche. And Achilles has a different moral code from the word. Mm, although my <laughs> honor comes in, but I would, that's again a historical sure. Sure. Uh, subject. Right, I've got you. Yes, but here first. Yeah. Um, Seth. Thanks for the, for the talk. Um, the sort of the question I wanted to ask was really about the people that um, the soldiers intentionally killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered, you, you didn't mention any any suggestion of them feeling any guilt for for those killings, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in particularly in light of reflection over whether or not they ought to have been. So whether, whether, whether they satisfied Yusuf Bellam, whether they should have been in Vietnam in the first place, mm-hmm. whether they should have been in, in Iraq. A different part of the narrative. But yes, certainly my Vietnam veterans will say, I was always taught to separate Yusuf Bellam. Well, they don't put it that way, but the cause from the conduct. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if I hadn't, I wouldn't have been able to go to Vietnam. Um, and this is from, you know, PhDs in philosophy at Yale and that, that go on. They really do believe very seriously. And, and reading um, Jeff's stuff, I've passed it along to some and others, you know, it does make them think differently. Um, m- many will uh, find it very difficult, but then there they, they come up with sub, um, sub uh, ends for comrade rather than cause and to bring people home alive. And then that's really, again, hard to hold on to in a counterinsurgency. Um, I've talked to many chaplains whose job it is with David Grossman, who works on this Colonel David Grossman, to get over the repugnance in killing and just understand that it's not murder, but some do believe it is murder given the cause. So yes, there's lots of individual struggles for that, or on those grounds. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about two books. One of them is Zimbardo's Lucifer Effect. Yes. The thrust of which, for me anyway, as far as this is concerned, is the way the situation can, the opposite of what you're saying, is absolve you of guilt, would make you behave more eagerly than you would if you were left to make choices on your own. I'm wondering if you ran into any of that. Mm-hmm. The second book is a British one. I don't know if you've run across it. It's called The Junior Officers Reading Club. Um, Don't know that one. Mm-hmm. Couple cut, cut books in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm reading it. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic book. Yeah, um, Oxford graduate too. He, yeah, he, he studied literature here and then mm-hmm. went into the forces mm-hmm. um, and ended up uh, at not seeing action, which was getting him more and more frustrated mm-hmm. in Vietnam, in Afghanistan, in, in a very very heavy fire zone. And, and what comes out of it for me was the sense of excitement, the bonds. Now he's young, he's probably 30. Uh, some of your people are a good deal older, but what I didn't get from, from that book anyway was much of a sense of guilt. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. whether you ran into particularly some of the younger people in mm-hmm. reactions like that. Well certainly, yeah, the gamut, and I'm not trying to uh, reduce in any sense um, responses. Uh, just I was struck by how uncallous many of the people were that I that I spoke to. Um, I had a young sniper who I knew <coughs> great length who was at Walter Reed. Early days at Walter Reed in our major hospital where we segregate in a way that you don't um, military care. Um, he was in there for two years in a medical holding company, um, meaning getting ready presumably to go back, but he had lost his leg and he had a, a titanium arm and a traumatic brain injury. He was not, there was no way he was going back. But anyway, And he was telling me, um, he was a sniper in Afghanistan and totally overrun when he um, was caught. And he killed the guy that killed his best friend and that was about to kill him. And he revved up with an excitement as I was interviewing, and and as my transcriber heard it too, that we could barely sit on our seats. It was so ramped up, adrenalized, even two years later. Um, and he has the tattoo of the name of the guy that his best friend um, on his arm. And there was a sense uh, of, as I sort of talked about, the revenge was so great and also the adventure. Four-year-old, I had pictures of myself in a, you know, uh, given a gun. My uncle was a Marine. I needed to be, I needed to be uh, in artillery, and, uh, infantry, and also, yeah, 
Certainly adrenaline is ramped up feelings. If you read something like Sebastian Younger's book, whatever it's called, War, he's a vanity fair writer who embedded for a year or so with a, with a unit. And I've heard him talk, you know, and he himself had that feeling of there's nothing more exciting. And can it, the folks that I talk to, my young students at Georgetown who will be 22-year-old lieutenants overseeing people that have been very, war, you know, war-wise um, in some sense, but, but eager, know that they have to keep the lid on. On, on individuals and, so, and worry very much. In my case, they spoke about worrying about had, another Hadith book. But I've also heard someone like Larry Coburn, who was in the, the side gunner for um, Hugh Thompson, who was the guy who stopped the further onslaught at Eli. And, and I had interviewed both of them at, um, about 15 years ago or so. And they, Larry, gunner, Larry Coburn, who was the side gunner, said, I'm not sure how I would have reacted if Hugh Thompson wasn't the guy sitting next to me who intervened and stopped the massacre. Very much command, you know, command climate is critical. <coughs> we know that. Very, very critical. And also, um, un, you know, unsuppressed adventure about the war is also very dangerous. So, the in maintaining unit morale under conditions of moral guilt seems from your account very much to be carried out at company command level. Mm -hmm. And so that rather, that rather does not formulate the rules of engagement or the doctrine under which those rules are devised. Uh, that's done in trade-off or combat under command or any of the coalition uh, army counterparts. <coughs> My question is this. Does, in your view, the... Uh, ground forces doctrine pay sufficient attention to the moral environment the soldier is going to have to face? And if not, how could it be improved? It's a good question. Um, I gather people are working on this issue right now, and I haven't been part of that task force in the States, at least of the West Point individuals, so I'm working closely with someone that is involved, Tony Pfaff, who's a colonel. And as I, um, I think some of it is to anticipate the issues, the conflicts that will come up, including loyalties to, uh, and trust relationships um, to villagers uh, versus to units. Um, many cases, I felt talking to leaders that there were sense, a, a sense of, the, uh, of training to protect your own and to and to violate that and to not call in air, air power when you could, an airstrike, was just something they weren't used to. And so some of it, and again, I'm not that familiar. I haven't watched carefully some of the um, simulated um, uh, videos and, and the like. But certainly in talking to individuals that have been there, it was still new news to them to not be able to immediately call in air power um, uh, in, difficult, in, in difficult cases where their guys felt they were pinned down. Um, so, I, uh, But when I was talking about this particular checkpoint incident, it was old rules of engagement. It wasn't the new ones that Stan and the Crystal had put into place. And there was much more uh, concern with mission and force protection than there was <coughs> with wooing the um, locals. Uh, and it, it shifted over time. And I think it still is hard. And, uh, and you know, those that are working very closely with um, the practitioners and, and um, forces, I'd love to hear more from you. But uh, my understanding is they have a, a long way to go in changing expectations about this. Um, yeah, hi. Um, thanks for your talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, you've spoken about guilt and shame um, and a little bit in response to the question about the gumpo attitude. <coughs> there is one emotion which I don't think you mentioned, and that's anger. Mm. Oh, it's very much there. It is. It's one of the chapters is about payback, and so it's anger. You know, of course, that's the classic. Can I just? Yeah. Oh, please ask. I didn't, I didn't have in mind. Well, actually, you did mention the payback thing. I, had, I didn't have in mind so much anger at 
the enemy, uh, but um, anger directed towards themselves, mm -hmm. having nothing they did. Mm -hmm. um, anger directed at well, the enemy, not so much the enemy for enemy, but you know the very villagers whom they have come to trust, but must have wandered that various forms, well, can we really trust them? Anger at the commanding officers, anger at the civilian politicians, you know, who mm -hmm. you know, send them, you know, in the first instance, and I was just wondering whether we could say a bit more. Yes, anger is there at all oh, moments, sorry. and yeah, and as you, as you say, anger directed at different objects. Um, anger sometimes, you know, in the form of revenge, classic mm -hmm. revenge at the enemy, but also Enormous anger at villagers whose loyalties are unclear, who are who have shifting identities between civilian and combatant, who use shields, um, and and who are who don't have their hands tied in the same way these soldiers have. Anger at commanders for compromising or for not supporting them, for asking them to build relationships and then not sending them enough money in the case that sense of betrayal, you know, anger, um, emotions are compounded mixed and a sense of betrayal is, is shot through with anger, shot through with anger. Um, Major Jeff Hall, who had this enormous sense of betrayal by his command and also a sense of mission, uh, betrayal by commanders in chief and the people. You know, he said, give me a mission. If it's moving one brick at a time, I want that one, but don't change it all the time. And in his case, anger then plays out against yourself. Suicide is often anger, enormous unresolved anger at yourself. And that, that is partly what's going on. You know, whoever the whipping boy or girl is in terms of family um, debacles and, and family violence, etc. David. Yeah, thank you for the talk. Very fascinating, as always. Um, so I wanted to take you back to um, mm -hmm. to your response to Seth's question, who asked about... Um, intentional killing. Yeah, intentional killing, and particularly in the context of you know these ad bellum questions, mm -hmm. questions of campaign legitimacy, I guess, sort of call it. So I was wondering, because your response to Seth was to say, well, your, your first response to this was to say, well, you know, people reference the distinction between ad bellum and ad bellum, you know, this classic doctrine of just war theory, rules of war. And I thought that was a really interesting response, because at one level, at least, this, you know, this doctrine of separation between ad bellum and ad bellum is exactly one of these kind of rationalist, you know, intellectually constructed moral norms that your examples precisely bring out can diverge from these moral emotions, right? So, you know, um, revenge. And intellectually, we understand that it makes no sense to have a moral <coughs> emotion of revenge towards somebody in Iraq, for example, who had, you know, one knows intellectually, had no responsibility for 9-11. But still, those emotions are there. You know, it makes no sense to feel guilt for, um, you know, turning the key in an initiative when there's, you know, you know, we know intellectually there's no sense, but those emotions come anyway. And I guess that's, you know, that's the whole reason why we find them so difficult and so troubling and so hard to make sense of. So, I guess given the whole context of that, um, whether you did see any evidence that people were having um, any, you know, a moral emotional response you know, do, for example, did you see a difference in the responses that people gave you who had fought in Iraq, where campaign legitimacy was much less clear than those who fought in Afghanistan, for example, where at least in the early stages it did seem a lot clear. Did you see those things feeding through? If you did, if people, you know, if these kind of broader ad bellum issues were simply not part of these emotional moral experiences of soldiers, what do you think that that... Do you think that has any implications for the project that Jeff and I and Cecile, I think, and various others have of trying to use the idea of human rights to really break down those, those barriers between our government and government? Mm -hmm, good. Um, yes, certainly. Here's, here's some of the morally shot, uh, shot through emotions that folks talked about. One guy, Derek Vines, um, Pops, he was called because you know, he left the army around 50 and reservists who just kept going. Bosnia, I could believe in. When I was called up, reserved from Greenbelt, Maryland, outside D.C., and my tech supporter, Woodrow Wilson. When I was called up for, you know, I was in training, boot camp, or, you know, sort of getting ready to mobilize, we all wished it were Afghanistan, early days, but it was Iraq. And he, he, kept, and, and he was in an intelligence unit. 
WMDs, where are those WMDs? I was suckered. He used that word suckered all the time to trade. And then he says, to be given, that's the hard pill to swallow by the top brass. Vietnam, I don't think it was shame. I would say taint. So the, the cause tainted his ability to fight with just conduct. That's sort of how he felt. And even though he's keeping them separate, this is a, a PhD guy. You know, he was keeping them separate. And I wouldn't say shame. And it was like, it was like um, Michael Hurd in Dispatches. I went, journalist, I went to cover Vietnam. Vietnam covered me. Sense of pollution. Um, so yes, some of them, re it is, I think it is hard. Arthur Miller in a play that many don't know about. He was did, called G.I. GI story. He wrote a script for Cohen Brothers. C O W, not not the Cohen, or not Cohen Brothers. A guy, a Cohen, C O W A N, Cohen Productions, spelled in another way. Um, <laughs> he went to visit various installations, and he said, "We've got to bring a story home that people can believe, and otherwise, we're going to have soldiers coming home who are severely traumatized." 40, that was forty-four or forty-one. So, I, yes, I think it definitely is. Um, and there are studies, and I don't know the statistics, of uh, causes you can believe in willingness to fight. Um, but I also think that there's rationalization, and it's not just rationalization, it's another reason that people can fight is certainly to take care of each other and to feel that they're not, uh, in some sense, abandoning a, a, a duty, patriotic duty or whatever. Um, yeah. Or ceding their place to another who will not do as well and will not act with the same kind of restraint. That's the common story I've heard. There's a question right at the back. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering, um, could you, uh, I guess, interviewed some Vietnam veterans and then some folks from Afghanistan, sort of on the question of anger. Do you think that there's going to, you know, just predicting in the future, be a sort of us versus them, the people <coughs> who went versus those who didn't end up? Because, I mean, soldiers who've, who've had four deployments sometimes feel guilt that they're not there another time. And we find that kind of amazing when it's, you know, less than 1% of the population who's generally going to these conflicts. So do you think that in the future there's going to be this sort of irreparable gulf between the, you know, generation of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan versus those who didn't? Or is it just such a small population set that you're not going to get that? I th another emotion I haven't addressed is resentment. Right. Mm -hmm. If you dig down very deep, mm -hmm. there is enormous <laughs> resentment. And the resentment comes in, at, uh, says a senior naval officer to me. I go to Home Depot, and they say, thank you very much for your service. You get a 10% discount. <laughs> All right, you know? Um, that's not, you know? So I sometimes think about it in terms of there's lip service and public respect, but deep sense of private respect, you know? Um, and I... Think in, in my classrooms, I really am trying to break down the words. A lot of those absurd do feel angry, and they also uh, feel they're a lot older, and they feel misunderstood, and or they'll say, I'm not just, if they're injured, I'm not just one more drunken driver. Um, and they, you know, they want their story told in some way. So I do think, uh, yes, I think very difficult a feeling of guilt on the part of civilians for not serving uh, in our country you know, in years too. There's no na no mandatory national service of any other sort, and so yes, very very unfair distribution of burdens. Some will say and feel. Will it make a difference in other generations? I'm not sure. Um, I just say one other thing: the Vietnam veterans I talked to, we forget, but many of them who really were badly traumatized psychologically are returning are are. are in our institutions, the veterans re-traumatized by footage and the like. It's a very hard, very hard for them to witness these wars. Yeah, I got you. I got you too. Don't worry. Yep. Okay. That's your. You're next. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, when one considers the um, application of lethal force by individuals, there's clearly a distinction to be made by acting in legitimate self-defense of oneself or another, and um, someone else in your in your troop regiment whatever, and acting under the extant rules of engagement at the time for offensive operations. Mm -hmm. And when you were interviewing those specifically from Iraq and Afghanistan, did you um, detect any differences in justification between those two issues, or was it not really considered? Good question, and I don't think I 
um, that came up specifically. Yeah. The, the, the reason I ask the question is because I picked up upon two words you used in, in, in answer to a, to a question later on, courage and restraint. Yeah. And clearly, courageous restraint is what is the flavor of the month in Afghanistan, which places a far greater significance upon acting in self-defense and defense of um, another vice offensive rules of engagement. Um, yes, and I'm picking up on that term that's the flavor of the, you know, the month term for friends that are serving. Um, I can't, I, I don't, I don't have enough interview material that specifically addresses that to be able to say that that's very important. Thank you. I certainly know there's lots of issues that you certainly know as well on, on exactly how to interpret, you know, interpret the ROEs and that's been the political discussion at the moment, how commanders are interpreting the ROEs that are coming down. And I, I haven't actually followed the debate as to just how Petraeus has been um, uh, influencing lower level interpretations that might give more room for bringing on firepower. I don't, and I don't know how it, you know, how it's very in, in coalitions that the British have been fighting with. <coughs> we haven't had the same level of debate, partly because I think in this country the argument would be that courageous restraint mm -hmm. Uh, you know, where you place yourself in the arc of fire was seen to be part of, of what you were doing much earlier in the whole conduct of, mm -hmm. of particularly in relation to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, not necessarily what happened, but certainly in terms of what the intention was. And, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, guy in the black leather jacket. Yes, uh, my name is. Uh, sorry, the oh, name. Sorry. I've got you. I've got you. Yeah. Uh, to to talk about the, um, the third war as called it, uh, the, the psychological battles and the, um, uh, uh, the skyrocketing of, of suicide rates. Um, to, to use the, the example mentioned by you uh, in the Vietnam War of the uh, sort of uh, shooting practice on, on civilians and the fact that today uh, there are channels um, uh, through which uh, it's, it's sort of expected that uh, incidents like those would be reported and the transparency generally is, is much larger. Does that place an extra burden on the soldiers who feel sort of morally implicated if they don't use the channels available to them, whereas previously those wouldn't have existed. Um, and uh, and then upon return, you find evidence that uh, all of this, this counseling uh, that, um, uh, uh, that are sought to address these problems is actually helpful. It seems that there's a, a correlation between the amount of counseling offered to soldiers and, and suicide rates. So is it the characteristics of the wars themselves that, um, uh, that motivate uh, the, the, these more uh, troubles, or is it um, the way that uh, those problems are dealt with upon return? I don't know that there's correlation between counseling and, and suicide. Um, I'll sort of address the question slightly differently. Um, my understanding is still Seeking mental health is stigmatized by many. It's just not what um, what what it, what real men do, if you like, real warriors. And in fact, the DoD. I've been involved with the Defense Centers of Excellence, and they have a site you probably know, RealWarriors.net, um, about how people seek help. And, pe and and I've been on radio programs where, I, to much to my amazement, uh, someone will speak up and say that he was promoted. Um, to major and, and referred by his commander, you know, and that is that's a public affairs announcement. Um, that someone could say it on air, and that someone feels comfortable about it. Um, for many, it's a career stopper, or it's uh, it's an admission of moral failure, weak fiber, um, and it's there are other ways self-medicate by by drugs and and, and alcohol or by battering your wife or whatever. Uh, it, uh, so it's still very, very hard to get help. The best I've seen in terms of being able to break down the barrier is forward deployment of psychological counseling units, of which there are many. There were many in Iraq and Afghanistan. They, they kind of, and one of my friends, one of my friends does this, you know, and he's out there getting to know the troops and the way chaplains get to know troops who do similar sort of work and making himself available, known in a command unit, known to the commander, doing little seminars so that, and then they do critical, they, for a while they're doing critical debriefing, so if something happens, 
people know where to turn and they already know the guys, or men and women that are far deployed. There aren't that many. And coming home, it is still hard and sort of a joke to fill out these form, these, these um, post-deployment forms about have you seen incidents close up, how many times, you know, they'd rather be with their family, get a latte or get a beer rather than fill these things out. So, and there's, so I would say quite, the, you know, there's still enormous stigma and they, the, there are people on the road whose job it is to, tr to destigmatize. Your figures seem to be very, very different and I don't know if it's the reporting mechanisms, self-reporting, um, uh, or you know, National Health Service uh, continues with you through life. We get you know a shot at the army, uh, at, the, at, at the military, and that's our National Health Service. And then there's the VA, which is a behemoth uh, bureaucracy that you have to fight, and you can kill yourself before you get service. Not the National Health Service isn't difficult. So I don't I don't know the ins and outs. This is the sort of thing I was in conversation with Simon Wesley about. But I know you have a different culture, and I don't know how it feeds into it. My soldier sailors. Marines, airmen want to be called heroes. They want to be called veterans, and they um, want to be thought of in the line of the same sort of line. They want to be called ex-service men and women. Yeah, I mean, I think what Simon would say if he were here, Simon Wesley would say, is that in some ways the U.S. is exceptional in, all, in a great many respects in terms of what we've been talking about. It's not just that it's different from the U.K. It's different from other countries' experiences too. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. And in, in, in much of this, and as uh, you know, you know what he would think uh, in terms of some of this. Uh, but you're right; the vocabulary is often different, and the expectations are different. Mm -hmm. uh, but paradoxically, of course, I mean, and, and I'm sorry because I should be directly questions. But much, many of the issues, because I spent most of this long back, most of the summer talking to our service personnel precisely about some of these issues and about this transition phase. And much of the issues, many of the issues that they're concerned with are precisely to have what the US has, <laughs> which you're essentially in some ways, you know, criticized. They would say, why, why, why aren't we getting 10% discounts? They're very good at the, at the, at the unit support for the bereaved family that you described in the case of the man who lost his face, but then of course the question that some of them now raise is actually we're finding it very hard to withdraw, you know, we're being told, I mean, we must stop giving support because all of us must be involved. So, you know, there are twists on these, these, these um, I don't really understand the comp, the, why the suicide rate is very low and why the um, trauma rates, we have some, we're quoted one in three apparently, Simon has said, you know, you're, you, we're using the same measures, I don't know if the self-reporting is yeah, the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, my name is Nate Pulliam, and I'm reading history at St. Anthony's, and, and I, I just got here <coughs> nine days ago from four years in Iraq. And uh, I just wanted to comment on a, a few of the things. I very much enjoyed your, your comments. I, I was in Iraq uh, initially for a year, 0506, as, uh, as an advisor to the 6th Iraqi Division, and then I went home to Atlanta for a year. And then for the last three years, I've been there in civilian status, but in a military organization. I was a senior lecturer at the... Uh, the U.S. military's counterinsurgency center at Taji, Iraq. Uh, and if I could just make a couple Please. of uh, comments, you know, uh, just maybe for the to throw out for for, for everybody. Uh, I think there is a tendency to think about Iraq, the not so good war, uh, Afghanistan, the good war, as you mentioned. But I would say something that I noticed uh, recurringly over time, especially with our young soldiers and maybe even the old ones like me is there's a tendency to think of, boy, I wish it was World War II again, where everybody was united and we really were fighting an enemy that was clearly almost universally seen as the bad guy. So uh, one, one point on that. The stigma thing, uh, obviously there is a problem, but, but the U.S. is doing so much to address it. You know, we do have TV in Iraq, by the way. All the military sit around and watch TV all the time. <laughs> And, you know, we don't have advertisements. And I, I could watch British Forces television there and, and watch the advertisements, which was great. We didn't have advertisements on American TV, uh, and I think because of law. So they had what we would call public... Uh, public interest broadcast. Yeah, public interest spots. And there were always... I mean, I, I couldn't watch two hours of TV. I mean, rarely did I have time for that anyway. But you couldn't have the TV on for two hours <clears throat> without seeing a major or a colonel or even a general talking about there is no stigma if you report your problems. And one of the fellows was a Brigadier General that is still on active duty as a general who had a nervous breakdown, I think. So I just wanted to throw that out, maybe to give a, a slightly different perspective. 
the suicides, I don't have any data to back this up. It's been disturbing me since I got there in 05, 06 and, and was seeing people kill themselves routinely in Iraq and also in the States, military people. And as you point out, traditionally the rate has been lower than, 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 the, than the national average, which I think is significant. We had just recently you know, started hitting what Americans in general are doing. But in my, um, it's my understanding that most of the suicides are not killing themselves over things they have seen or done in Iraq. It's over problems they've got at home, and because they are often in their third or fourth year away from their family out of the last six or seven or eight, that they are unable to, to address those problems. So well, I don't, you know, the tail, you know, what's wagging the tail, as they say. I, it, there's no doubt that there was a moral battlefield survey and certainly one of the signs of stress that was coming with as deployments increased was home relations, domestic relations, marital relations, yeah. um, and also treatment of civilians abroad in, in, the, in the combat area. Um, there's no doubt that, it, that uh, many of the soldiers are young yeah. and have difficult marriages to begin with and Always, in, always infidelity is an issue, and right. coming home is hard. The transition is tough. Even when you're transitioning uh, and going off in a year's time, most folks, or six months' time, will tell me, you know, you have three weeks at home, and then you're really doing stateside what you would be doing elsewhere in terms yeah. of uh, retraining. Re re so, you know, I don't know what's symptomatic and causal, but, but um, it, it, it's mixed, and the strains and stresses compound each other. Mm -hmm. Strain already, um, and uh, I, I, I presume uh, you know there, there's massive reconsiderations of this already. I'm not a policy analyst in that regard, so I can't quite say what's 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 going to happen. But there, the the psychological injuries, as well as these moral injuries that I'm addressing, which may have long sequelae, um, are something that we're anticipated. Nor fighting wars, each of which is longer, you know, than the major wars that we we fought this century, this past the past century. So, yes, there will be enormous policy implications, but I don't know what they will what they will look like. Will we have? Will the states have a volunteer? I mean, a, a conscription? I can't imagine it ever going through Congress. I simply can't imagine that would that would happen. Well, I mean, yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask two brief questions, I suppose. The first was, um, my understanding was that you're claiming that suicide rates now are at a, an all-time high, as it were, that we have an unprecedented level of suicide after conflict at the moment. Some uh, months have suicide rates that are higher than, than amongst the general population, is my understanding. It varies a little bit. And it's not all, you know, uh, many of them are stateside. You may know some more specifically, but, uh, but in general. I mean, a friend of mine and many of you might know in this room, Ted Westhusing, who was a West Point colonel that went over, was one of the earliest and highest ranking suicides. And that was committed while in service in Iraq. So, 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 so what I really want to ask, sorry, was compared to, say, Vietnam or the World War II or Korean generation, are we seeing a higher rate of suicide today than we did? My understanding is yes, uh, since they've been keeping records. Why do you think that is? Because I, I can't imagine that war has become you know, more or less traumatic in many instances. I'm sure veterans of all these conflicts saw incredibly traumatic things. Uh, and also the home, the domestic situation, I can't imagine has changed. Infidelity, loss, longing. But what does seem to have changed is sort of uh, soldier-society relations over that time have changed from citizen-soldier where most of the adult male population went through this conflict together 
to today where we only have this 1%. And that sort of led on to my next question, which is to look at this issue of suicide as a public health issue. Is there something that we need to educate our society about how we construct the soldier, how we engage with the veteran, or the return soldier, <coughs> and how our politicians construct the discourse of the soldier? And it connects with what you were saying about they want to be seen as heroes, what Professor Strahm was saying about the British soldiers having some uh, you know, animosity about the treatment of the American soldiers and then being dissatisfied with Home Depot giving them the 10% discount. How do we? Well, I'll go backwards. I do think absolutely military-civilian relations have to be restructured um, and many, many barriers broken down. Um, and uh, some sense of burden sharing, absolutely, as well as just empathic understanding, if you like, which is part of what I'm trying to do. On the question of why suicide rate is so high, you know, all the studies suggest that uh, the stress of long deployments, multiple deployments, some upward of seven, uh, nine years of war, many reserves and guards not expecting it, hoping to get education or some other kinds of training, coming home often, finding that, they, you know, you're, that they're untrained for what is available, the incredibly awful economies, some reasonable grievances, I would say, as well as um, many other factors. And, and I do think that the uh, mission lack of clarity and um, perhaps cause, cause issues, cause conduct um, uh, issues, as well as um, uh, the strain of counterinsurgency. You know, I, this, is not, this is not doing it uh, in terms of studies, but certainly that, that some of the anecdotal information suggests and some of the surveys suggest some of this. Sam, let's go to the last question. Um, thank you again for the talk. Um, most of your discussion focuses on very intimate exchanges, like the examples of the checkpoint. Um, I was wondering if you had the chance to talk to any drone pilots mm -hmm. um, where killing is conducted from a facility in Nevada. Um, Jonathan Glover, in his book, specifically talks about the moral difficulties of killing at a distance, and drone pilots have actually had one of the highest suicide rates of, of any unit. Um, and, and if you see differences between those kinds of soldiers and that type of service mm -hmm. versus most of the people in Peter Singer, uh, uh, um, yeah. Peter Singer, the other Peter Singer, at the Brookings, um, has come to my class and talked. He's done this amazing work on child warriors, but also Wired for War is a book I would recommend. Um, who suggests a few things, and there's been a lot of discussion of this in the American media. Um, there's anomie, uh, going to going to work in a trailer in Nevada, halfway around the world with the distance, and a sense of trying to fight that by putting Air Force uniforms on individuals so they know they're going they're going to war. They're just going to a different kind of war. Um, so some of and a, a sense of, of being themselves very well protected, very invulnerable, and making civilians extremely vulnerable. That that's not easy morally to um, to swallow. Um, secondly, they are very isolated from their units. At the end, um, so there's that moral alienation. And thirdly, they do see very graphically what's going on through through monitors. I I have not seen it myself. I've seen it reproduced on television. It's not quite the same thing. But it's hard. Um, so there's going to be a lot. There is, for different reasons, um, certainly that stress. I would also say, you know, pilots will often tell me, you know, we don't carry the same baggage that those on the ground do, but we carry a different kind of baggage. And it is true, and there are these FF functional um, MRI studies that suggest, you know, distant, that um, up close killing of that's foreseen but unintended kind of reads in your brain in the limbic system a little bit like intended killing, you sort of um, intentional killing, and distant foreseen but unintended when you're flying high doesn't, to get the comparable, doesn't quite read the same way. It's not as, uh, it's not close encounter in the same way. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of that plays in, but then, you know, it's layered on top of these other effects that I was just talking about. Yeah, moral alienation, am I really carrying the burden? I, you know, I'm safe, my buddies aren't. Those can't be easy 